I want to pick up in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and uh, we're, again, kind of in the middle of, of a section that Solomon is dealing with. He is uh, walking through uh, on a journey trying to understand in this section, why does God, why does God bless some people and not bless others? Is righteousness a key to blessing from God? Is a sinful lifestyle the reason why you do not experience prosperity? Or should be willing to accept both prosperity and adversity from God's sovereign hand. And so Solomon is probing that, and he's testing it in in a number of ways. I want to pick up in verse 25, which is the third point the third test that he's making. Look at verse 25, and notice particularly, if you will, the verbs. Do you remember what a verb is? As you dust off the cobwebs of your mind? Anyway, I turned my heart to know, to search out, to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. So when you look at those words to know, to search out, to seek wisdom, to know, what does that communicate to us? He has done a thorough investigation of this. This is not something that he has treated in a frivolous or superficial or shallow way. And what does he want to know? The wicked, I read from the ESV translations, that's how they translate this, to know in the middle of verse 25, the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And you say, well, why do you want to study that? Why do you want to study the life of a fool? Because if I study the life of a fool, I know how to be wise. Does that make sense? That sounds almost like, duh. Duh. But in a sense, that's what he's doing. And he reaches four conclusions. Conclusion number one is in verse 26. And I find something more better than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Right? What is he talking about? There? This is, as, as I know that's frustrating for us at times, but he speaks like in Proverbs. He speaks in, in a, in a pervert, he's making a statement, and the woman there is not a real woman. It's the woman folly. It's the woman foolish, the foolish woman, the woman who is filled with folly. He says, I've learned something in studying foolishness, in studying folly, that folly, folly leads to snares and nets whose hands are fetters. What does that mean? It enslaves. It ensnares. It traps. That's a good observation. Let's think about that in terms of an example. If you follow a fool around for a couple of days, what are you going to observe? Here's a person who does not, does not manage time well, does not manage their resources well, money, etc., 
and wastes a lot of time doing frivolous, ridiculous things. But it seems that the more they live like that, the more fulfilling and, and fun it is for them. They just live for the moment. But he says that kind of a life is a snare. It's it like traps. Fet, a fetter, ESV translated fetter, you know what a fetter is, like ropes that tie you up. So he just observed, that's not a very good way to live your life, to follow woman folly, lady folly, lady foolish. And he says, secondly, I've observed something else. In the middle of verse 26, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Ah, the second thing I observed, the second thing I concluded, is that the person who seeks to obey and please God avoids the lady folly, avoids foolishness, avoids, avoids the wasteful way to live. Oh. Thirdly, third conclusion, now he's getting a little more theological, he's getting a little more into doctrine, but verse 28, which my soul has sought repeated, oh, sorry, verse 27. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among those I have not found. What in the world does he mean by this? I have found, I have discovered that there are very few upright wise people did you see that? But I've not found. My soul is repeatedly sought, but I've not found it. One man among a thousand I found. What does he mean? Now, I don't know. This is a, it's a proverb. I doubt that he means this as a statistic. But he says, you know, I really found very few wise people who walk with God and escape the life of the fool. And then he says something which would be really popular in 2023. But a woman among these I have not found. Are you following what he just said? I haven't really seen any wise woman. Now, I don't even want to touch that, so I'm just going to leave that lying there on the table. All he is saying is, this is really what's important. All he's saying is, in my observation, I really have not seen very wise, upright men and women. I haven't really seen many people who live their lives wisely. In other words, what I've seen is a lot of people who are living very foolish lives. And then he makes a final conclusion, and it's at the end of the end of the paragraph here. See, this alone I have found that God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes. The fault of all this foolishness is not God. And he uses that word. Now, again, I'm reading for the ESV. I don't know what all the different translations out there might say. But ESVs translate, God made man upright. That's the word that's used of Job in the first chapter of Job when he's described as a man upright, blameless. It's that same word. And when you go back, of course, he's, he's taking you back. He's taking you back to Genesis. God made man upright. 
God gave man stewardship responsibility over his world. God gave, put man in a, an environment of innocence. Was it God's fault that man chose sin? No. So, what, so when you put all these together, by these, I mean this paragraph from 25 through 29, you see a pretty nice summary of the human condition. Four conclusions. A lot of people follow the path of foolishness, lady folly. Secondly, those who do not follow those path, that path are the, are the people who follow and obey God, who walk with God. But thirdly, he says, you know, I haven't really found many people like that. As a matter of fact, he uses a number. I've only found one in a thousand. I doubt, again, that he means that in a real statistically precise way. He's just saying, I haven't found many. And actually, none of this is God's fault. It's the human capacity to not choose God, but to choose a life of foolishness, a life of sin. So when you put it down and distill it down to those four points, they're pretty accurate observations about the human condition. They really are. This is what Solomon's doing. He's doing investigation after investigation after investigation to try to deal with the issues that begin at the very beginning of, of the book in chapter one. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything doesn't seem to have much meaning to it if you leave God out of the picture. All right? Yeah. Yep. Um, all of us, as, as humanity, from Adam and Eve, have had an opportunity to recognize the simple fact. What would you say? And yet, I mean, if you do say that, um, yet it's so much. Can you explain? Maybe this is a good question. Can you explain why? Most of humanity elects to follow the flesh rather than the spirit of God. Well, there's a simple question. Oh my goodness, I could uh, I could answer that in a lot of different ways. I think I think fundamentally, Fred, the the human conditions characterized. by a desire not to walk with God, but to assume and assert control over everything in your life. I am the captain of my ship. I don't need God. And so you're going you're gonna to adopt one of three positions. One, I'm going to totally deny God the position of you know, what we today call atheism, or I'm going to choose the position of a religious position of kind of a, a deism. There's a God, he exists, but he really doesn't care much about me, and I really don't care about much about him, but I recognize there's a God. There's something beyond the physical world, and I don't really need him. And then the third position is, I desperately need him. He's my creator. He's my redeemer. He's my savior. He's my Lord. And I have discovered, and this is what Solomon is really observing. If I try to run my life, it leads to a mess. If I surrender my life to the Lord, 
I will begin, and it key word, I will begin to walk the path of wisdom. I'm using the language that Paul, excuse me, that Solomon uses here. And I, I think that's the way we should really, let me just turn that off. That's really the way we should look at what Solomon is saying. He looks at three different groups of people. The person who chooses to totally deny God. I don't need God. The person who says, well, there is a God, and I'll tip my hat at him. I may go through some religious exercises, but he's really not that important to me. And except maybe in times of crisis, I'll tip my hat at him. Hey, help, if you're still there. Well, the person who recognizes I am in utter, I am in utter desperation. And if I do not surrender my life to this God, my life will continue that downward spiral of self-destruction. Now, I'm really using exaggerated words there. But that's a sense of there are three choices about how you're going to live your life. Solomon is saying, this is what I've observed about humanity. A lot of people follow the path of, of lady folly, foolishness. The people who don't are the people who give themselves to God. But I actually haven't found very many people have done that. Only one in a thousand. And fourthly, don't blame God for this. God created man upright. He chose rebellion. Jim, I think it's possible for somebody to uh, to think, well, there is a God, but I'm not ready for that. I'm just going to ignore him for a while. And uh, exactly, yeah, I think I exactly. did. That. You know, I mean, I knew there was, but I, I it was uh, too confining. Uh, too restrictive to, That's right. to work to, to live the way that God wants us to live. That's right. No, I, I think you're right. I think that's, that's actually coming, coming to faith. I'll put it the way the New Testament put it. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ for some people, I like your word, is too confining. It's too restrictive. I had a man say to me, and this goes back several years ago, but I had a man say to me, oh, if I choose to follow Jesus, I'm going to give too much up. Yeah, he's looking at it. That's the totally wrong lens put on. I'm going to have to give up too much. There's that selfishness, self-centeredness that is at the core of the human condition. I can run my life better than God can. No, you can't. But, you know, essentially people do not want to surrender to God because they still believe I can run my life better than God can. Solomon says that's the path of the fool. All right, chapter 8. Very. Can I, can I mention something here? Yeah. On, on 26 here, this is not... This takes a little effort tack. He talks about a woman who was a snare, and there's a reference to Proverbs 7, 6 to 27, which goes into a lot of detail about a prostitute and snaring a foolish young man. Mm -hmm. And what this is here um, is just a, a very brief synopsis of that. You know? right. So you, I can see where Solomon's coming from if he supposedly was responsible for a good part of Proverbs. That's correct. So, That's correct. So I don't know which came first, this one or the Proverbs. Probably the Proverbs were yeah. written first. Okay. Ecclesiastes is written near the end of his life. Yeah. yeah. 
2026 is written, it seems more like literal than a metaphor for but you know, I think that's smart either. Looks like it's well. I don't. I, when you look back at some of Solomon's earlier writings, where he's the guy who said it's better to live in a holy wilderness than in a house with a nasty woman. So, but I think the key is verse twenty-five, where he's investigating, searching out, seeking true. the wickedness of folly. Yeah, the theme is foolishness, right? Not just a woman. The theme is foolishness, right? The and so he personifies. A woman as the woman of folly, a life of foolishness, and an illustration of that, because that's clearly what he said. The woman, not a literal woman, but woman as the woman of folly. An illustration of that is the passage where he gives advice to his children. Don't go down to the red district. <laughs> if you go down to the red district, you're going to find a woman who's going to lure you in. But there's much foolishness is not just following the prostitute. A life of foolishness is every aspect of life. And any, if you follow foolishness of materialism, it will ensnare you. If you follow a life of just eat, drink, and it will ensnare you. If you follow a, a lifestyle of laziness, it will ensnare you. If you, you see what I'm saying? Lady folly is a life of foolishness, not just going after a prostitute. Can I go into chapter 8 now? Would that be all right? I mean, I don't want to. One more comment quickly. <laughs> Talk about an upright woman. Did not find an upright woman. He found one upright man. Uh, don't you think his investigation would have had to be pretty limited to all the hangers-on that encircled him in, in the Bible? I mean, would he would be going out into the foothills? I yeah, I doubt that he took long walks on all <laughs> twelve tribes of Israel. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Sorry, no, that's fine. Verse eight, excuse me, chapter eight, uh, and it's. Compared to some of the other chapters we've been studying, this is a short chapter. It's only 15 verses. But remember, the overarching theme in, in Ecclesiastes is the providence of God as the solution to solving the seeming meaningless of life, meaninglessness of life, the seeming futility of life. There is a God who's sovereign, and his providence is real. So now Solomon poses a series of questions and reaches some observations about the role of the king. Let's put it in the way we would talk about it, the role of government. The governing authorities in our lives. In the United States, we live in a country, we live in a state, we live in a city. There are three levels of government plus multiple others. So Solomon's making some observations about authority in our lives. And he's making some observations. How does the authority of government, let me use the way we would talk about it, the authority of government mesh with the sovereign providence of God? How do those two mesh together? Do you understand? I'm trying to put it in terms that help us to apply this. So he starts in verse 1 of chapter 8 with two rhetorical questions. Who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. The hardness of his face is changed. Now, the second part, verse 2, is sort of a, a, a reflection of what does a wise man look like? A wise man looks like even his demeanor. 
the countenance of his face, his appearance, gives the indication of wisdom. So when he asks the question, who is like the wise, who knows the interpretation of a thing, he's talking about a person who's wise, a person who lives their life wisely and can properly, listen very carefully to this, properly and wisely interpret things that are happening. He doesn't answer the question. Verse 2 says, you'll know a wise man when you see him. That's what, it, when he said, wisdom makes his face shine, the heart is as hard as his chain. You'll know a wise man when you see him. Well, that doesn't answer the question for us. But let's talk very briefly, although the way we're going today, it's not going to be briefly, but let's talk very briefly. Is, is, that, is that right? That you'll know a wise person even before they speak? Does the count, you know what countenance mean? Does the expression, the demeanor of a person, or the way their face looks, you know, can you see a wise person without them even speaking? Can you recognize a wise person without them even speaking? No. Can you tell the book without it by its cover? You might observe his behavior over a longer period of time and see how he conducts his life and make that discern. Okay. Fred, in his brilliance, has hit upon what Saul, Solomon is really saying here. Follow a person around. Watch how they live. Observe how they carry out their wisdom. You do not necessarily have to have them speak. You can watch. You can see the effects. You can see the results of wise decisions that they make. In the Wall Street Journal, uh, it was this morning, I forget when I, not even this morning, maybe it was yesterday, but anyway, there was a really interesting article. There's been a study done in California dealing with health issues, and they had a whole bunch of metrics and things that were measured. You know what they discovered? Overall, Christians live longer, go to the doctor fewer times, and it's just a whole bunch of metrics. It was really interesting. And it was even more interesting, one of the leading groups was Seventh-day Adventists. <laughs> which has a whole other area to bring into the discussion. But if, if you know anything about Adventism, it's not only they worship on Sunday, but they have very strict dietary laws, very strict dietary issues that are part of Are you familiar with that movement? And they're just reaching some conclusions that lifestyle choices affect health and longevity of life, which, you know, well, duh, but in, a, in another sense, that's part of what Solomon's talking. That's a very mundane little illustration, but follow a wise person around, and you will see things that give evidence of their wisdom. Who is like the wise? Who knows how to interpret things? In effect, he's saying, follow them around. And so what Solomon does now is he zeroes in, in one to one specific area. Now, for you and me to make sense of some of this, we have to remember something. In the ancient world, certainly that was true of the, the, the country that Solomon was king over. It was a monarchy, and it was 
pretty close to being an absolute monarchy. And for the most part, to disobey the king was potentially life-threatening. At least it was much more severe than the kinds of things we often observe in terms of disobeying the state or disobeying government. And so Solomon, in effect, is saying, okay, I've said who is wise, who knows how to interpret things correctly. You'll see it in how they live. I want to, Solomon speaking, I want to focus on one thing. What does a wise person's relation to government look like? And so the first thing he says, I say, this is verse 2 now, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. I want to ask you a question, and it's very uncomfortable for those of us who live in the United States and believe in rights and liberties and our, our, our right to protest government, our right to complain and gripe about government. I'm not sure that's a right, but that's what happens. But is obedience to government a principle taught in the Bible? Yes. Yeah, with some exceptions. Absolutely. Yep. Okay, I've heard absolutely, I've heard yes, I've had four guys shake their heads, I don't know what's happening online, and one guy said, well, it depends. <laughs> if the government tells you to do an ungodly thing, you, you don't obey them. What, what does he say at the end of verse 2? Because of God's oath to him. What does Paul say in Romans 13, 1? What is... What does Daniel say in Daniel chapter 4, verse 17 and verse 25? God put the rulers there. In Romans 13, 1, Paul says, I want you to submit to government because submit to government, submit to God. God put the rulers there. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 17 and 25, this is actually an angel speaking to and communicating to Nebuchadnezzar. You must learn that the most high rules in the affairs of man and puts in power those whom he wishes. So to disobey government is to disobey God. That's what he's saying here. Keep the king's command because of God's own command. Now, you are correct in one sense. The principle of scripture is, in terms of obedience to the state, you obey the state until it's a sin to obey the state. And in that same book I, I quoted from a moment ago, in the book of Daniel, you have several examples of that. Remember chapter 1? Nebuchadnezzar brings the best and brightest from Judah to Babylon. And he gets these guys, Daniel was one of them, among others, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they are supposed to be trained now in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And their whole diet is changing, because they want to make them into Babylonians. Remember what Daniel says? We are not going to eat this food. It's not kosher. And the court goes ballistic to test it. Let us do this. And you watch us for a period of time. Are we going to lose weight? Are we going to be... And it's amazing. No. Okay, we'll let you do it. And then you got to go several chapters ahead. And then Nebuchadnezzar builds this massive monument to himself. Remember that? And at the sound of musical instruments, everybody's to what? Not out. But there are three guys who won't do that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know what Nebuchadnezzar says? If you don't bow down, I'm going to burn you. I'm going to throw you in that kiln there. In Acts chapter 4, in Acts chapter 5, 
the political flags of Jerusalem say to Peter, James, and John, well, excuse me, just Peter and John at this point, but anyway, Peter and John, do not preach Jesus the Christ in this city. And so Peter and John say, okay. Is that what they say? No. They go out and preach Christ in Jerusalem. And what happened? They're arrested and stand before the Sanhedrin. And Peter makes a very, very insightful comment. We must obey God, not man. But Solomon is making, as the, as the Bible says throughout Old and New Testament, obey the state because God, God created the institution of the state. It starts in Genesis 9. And the state is to do two primary responsibilities, more than that, two primary. Promote justice and thwart evil. They're the two primary responsibilities of governing authority. And so he says, because God's out to God put that person there. They have a stewardship responsibility before God. Your task as a follower of God is to obey them. And you're correct. You obey until it's a sin to obey. Now, why is that? Because God is a God of order. And God creates institutions to promote order. God is not a God of chaos and disorder. And the creation of the institution of the family, the first institution he creates, is to create order and structure for children, to train them, to equip them to become the next step. There are all the many things that you see in Scripture, in the state. And then another institution God creates is the church. Well, I'm getting way beyond this, this, this particular point Solomon's make, but it's very instructive. Who's a wise person? Who knows how to interpret things? Example. A person who obeys government. That's a wise person. That's all Solomon's saying. I've observed something. That's a wise person. And what he does, he then, and it, again, this is a little, a little not difficult, but it's a little unusual, because when it comes to, to our, we don't think this way. But in the ancient world, the very first thing he says is an, an evidence of this, an evidence of respect. And honoring and obeying government is, number one, verse three, first piece of evidence, do not hasty, be not hasty to go from his presence. Whose presence? Well, the king, the authority figure, the political authority figure. If he calls you into his office, into his court, and asks you to do something, don't be hasty to leave. What does that mean? You know, that for you, I mean, that doesn't communicate much. But in the ancient Near Eastern world, respect and dignity goes hand in hand in how you treat authority. That is very foreign to Americans. We, we don't have an aristocratic society. We have no heritage of monarchy or aristocracy like Europe does. We don't. So, you know, I can't tell you. you I, this is just a stupid illustration, but it's really an interesting one. My students that I used to have, and even people at, that I have in classes around here and things I do at church, I will get you, hey, Ekmans. That's the beginning of the email. Hey, Ekmans. Now, I don't, you know, Peggy said, why do they, why do they address you like that? I said, well, honey, I, 
want them to be comfortable. I want them to be relaxed. I want them to have the freedom to ask me any question. But she said, that's not a very dignified way to address you. <laughs> Jim, they should be saying, dear Reverend Dr. Jim. And I said, no, honey, I don't want them to do that. I even say to them, please call me Jim. But it is, isn't it? Hey, Ackman. He's saying, and in the international world, this was really important. Dignity and respect for authority is important. It's an evidence of your relationship to what God has put in your life. Number two, do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. That's talking about rebellion. That's talking about rebelling against disobeying and it, it's again this isn't you obey until it's a sin this is you are choosing to disobey what the king is asking you to do number three for the king, word of the king is supreme and who may say to him what are you doing whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way for there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. Or who did not know what is to be, or who can tell him how it will be? A lot of various proverbial type statements. Why obey the authority in your life? Why obey political authority? He gives in chapter um, 8, verse 5, and verse 6, three little ideas, three little reasons, three little appeals of why it's wise to obey. The first one is, whoever keeps command will know no evil thing. You avoid harm. You avoid what will harm you. The king God has placed in your life the king is to rule wisely. He may or may not do that, but to obey the king is to avoid harm. Because remember, the primary responsibility of government is to promote justice and thwart evil. Obeying authority helps to suppress, control, and restrain evil. Follow that. Secondly, he says, the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way the proper way to respond, the proper way to apply, the proper way to obey and live out what the king is asking you to do. You don't take what the king is asking you to do lightly, frivolously, or shallowly. You take it seriously. It keeps you from harm. You think through wisely applying and doing what he wants you to do. And then thirdly, In verse 6, for there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. Obedient people avoid often the misery of disobedience and rebellion against authority. This isn't talking about being complacent or apathetic. It's talking about wise people. Wise people obey the law. Wise people sit, take what the law says seriously. Wise people thereby avoid misery.
Now remember, these are observations Solomon is making. Every one of these is going to say, but, 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 you're going to have 17 buts to this. But the wise life is the life, the life who takes authority seriously and seeks to obey that authority because God's put them there for a reason. You know, if you go outside of America, where words like rights and liberty and equality are not as important, this isn't difficult for people to understand. But in America, oh, you are chafing a little bit, aren't you? You're chafing at some of this a little bit. But can you express it this way? Because if you read the Constitution, we respect the structure, but like everything else, the individual that fulfills the law can become corrupted, like he's talking about here. And they may need to go. Chicago just got rid of a very corrupt leader. But you still respect the structure of the mayor's office on down. But that doesn't mean the individual person doesn't need to go. It's been said you respect the institution, not necessarily. But Titus says something at the beginning of chapter 2. I should say Paul says it to Titus. Titus, teach your people to respect the emperor. When he wrote that, who was the emperor? Who was the Caesar? Nero. Nero. I'm reading a biography of Nero right now. I just started. It just came out. And I'm reading it because I want to understand Nero because he's a key Caesar during the New Testament time. I want to understand him. But anyway, it's, it's instructive. One of the evidences of respect and honoring authority is 1 Timothy 2. Pray. For those on authority, I used to. I, I am now involved in my own church, so I don't do what. But I used to travel a lot, and preach all over the United States. Was part of my role as president. But it was is the election. Uh, I forget what year it would have been. It was Obama was running. But I, I thought I'm going to make everybody mad at this church because we were studying First Timothy, and we were in chapter 2, I said, okay, I'm going to ask you a very, very important biblical question that is dear to the heart of God. How many of you this week prayed for President Obama? <laughs> now, you know, typically the churches where I go, they're all Republicans, they all watch Fox News, Fox News and to them, uh, Obama is anathema. <laughs> but Paul says in First Timothy 2, pray for those in authority. Pray for the Caesar. Pray for his officials. And so I, I you know, I, I, I put the knife in and twist a little bit. Isn't that an awful thing? But it's biblical. And I, you know, again, I'm not trying to make any, I'm not trying to create any tension here or make you guys angry. But part of respect of authority and respect for institutions is pray for that. Pray for that person. Because as much as we push back on that, Remember, God, however you want to put it, God permitted that person to be the leader. However you think of that person, for reasons that you and I aren't going to know because the providence is so solemn. Part of our response, part of the wise person is the person who obeys government, who respects and honors what the king and seeks to obey. I mean, looks and analyzes it. But that respect and honor involves this one. He doesn't talk about it here, but it involves also praying for that person whom God has put there, even though you disagree with 98% of what they do. 
Well, that's too convicting, so let's move on. Verse 8. No man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those forgiven to all. To, or to it, excuse me. All this I have observed while applying my heart to know all that is done under the sun. When man had power over man to his hurt. Oh, goodness. Foolishness, wickedness, disobedience has a cost. It has a cost, just like no one has power over wind or death or even being discharged from war. People, people in authority can turn that authority into hurting them, can use their power to exploit and oppress. And unfortunately, you can't always escape that. So Solomon addresses in verse 10 through 15, through the end of this chapter. Then I saw the wicked buried. What does he mean? Okay, part of my investigation, part of my observation, I observed the burial of a wicked person. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. What is he saying about that wicked person that he's observing them being buried? They used to go in and out of the holy place. They seem to be righteous people. They seem to be a a righteous person. They were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is vanity. This doesn't make sense to me. This is, this is futile to me. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Let's stop there for just a minute. I know this is a little bit hard, but Solomon is pressing one of the points that, that he comes across over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. The wicked... The wicked seem to live full, abundant, prosperous lives. And I observe, look at verse 11. The sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. What does he mean by that? Justice is not carried out in a timely manner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If God is providential and his sovereignty is real, why isn't he dealing with evil? Why is his justice delayed? Do you ever ask that question? Okay, none of you are. Are you with me? You, you, I didn't hear that question, so I'll repeat it. Did you ever ask that question? 
I mean, yeah, yes, I ask that question a lot to the Lord. But I don't understand why you're not dealing with this. I'm sorry, I missed the question. What? Well, the question which is, verse? I'm, I'm in. I'm in verse eleven. The sentence against an evil deed oh. is not executed speedily, because the heart of man is fully set to do evil. It, it doesn't seem like God deals with, resolves issues of evil speedily. Can I give an example? In Kansas City, uh, a policeman was broadsided by a fellow going 85 miles an hour through an intersection and killed the policeman and his dog. I think I saw that, yeah. So, um, fair charge to against God, isn't it? And the other thing is the, the, the guy that was speeding walked away from it. With no, virtually no injuries. What sense does that matter? Now listen, man. This is a this is a question that people have pondered for thousands of years. Asaph, who wrote one of the Psalms, says, "Lord, I don't understand why do the wicked prosper and the righteous do not." Another another question he asks: Why do the wicked live long lives? And the righteous die young. Now that not that's not everyone. It's not everybody. You see that. Yesterday I read an article in Christianity that just came out, and the guy was probing this question. You know, in my heart, I want to be a universalist. I don't know if you know what that means. He's, he's dealing with an issue that's kind of come back. A lot of people are talking about it in theology and stuff today. But that ultimately God's going to save everyone. That God's goodness is going to be a fact. And everybody's going to eventually get to heaven. He said, you know, I really want to believe that. I really want to embrace that. That ultimately, that, that the universal grace and goodness of God is going to, because ultimately he's going to save everybody. Because everybody's wicked. But he started thinking biblically about this, and he started to say, well, not only all that the Bible says about sin and rebellion against God, he says, but I want to, this is what Psalm is dealing with. I cannot embrace universalism because of the justice of God. God says to us over and over and over again, I will make everything right. I will settle all accounts. The last verse of this book in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is we are accountable to God. Dr. Mao says, because of God's justice and God's promise that he's going to make everything right, he will deal with evil. He will settle all accounts. He will promote justice. There is such a thing as God's judgment. And again, in the providence and sovereignty of God, you and I are looking at things in a very narrow space of time. <clears throat> because there's another principle that's in the scriptures. That God has the power and authority to bring good out of evil. And he can he will so superintend and providentially 
deal with things in such a way that out of difficult things of life that we would regard, he can make good things occur for righteous, sovereign, purposeful end. The greatest example of that, of course, is the cross of Jesus Christ. But even in Genesis 50, where Solomon, or excuse me, Solomon, Joseph, uh, his dad has just died, Jacob has just died, and the sons, the other brothers of Joseph, think now Joseph's going to get his revenge. And so they, in cowering in fear, they go into the court. Remember what Joseph says to them? I'm not going to seek my revenge. What you meant for evil in throwing me into that pit and selling me to the Ishmaelites, you meant that for evil, but God meant it for good. God took something that was monstrously evil and affected good out of it. The salvation of the people of Israel. The clan of Jacob, 70, took down to Egypt and would spend the next 400 years and the nation of Israel will be born in the cocoon of, of Goshen in Egypt. And so God has that eternal perspective. You and I have that narrow temporal perspective. We don't see how everything fits together. Solomon is trusting God with this because he says, I know, in verse 12, I know it will be well with those who fear God. Remember, fear is a worship word because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, verse 13. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't explain this. He doesn't say how this is just saying it's going to be well. He's looking at, in terms of eternity, God's going to settle all accounts. And Dr. Mao says, listen, the person who's a pedophilia and will never repent of that, he'll have to answer to God for that, for the rise he ruined. Adolf Hitler has to answer to God for what he did. Joseph Stalin has to answer to God for what he did. Mao Zedong has to answer for God what he did. Someday Vladimir Putin's going to have to answer to God for what he's doing to the people of Ukraine, destroying the church's fascinating Protestant ministry. Gonna have to answer for that. I have confidence in that. I don't understand why God is allowing this to go on, but I have the confidence that God's gonna make it right. That's what Solomon's saying. I can't understand all this. This is what is so mysterious of Solomon's speaking. So mysterious to me about God's providence, but I know one thing: it will be well with those who fear God, it will not be well for the wicked. That's propositional truth. You can bank on it. That's what Dr. That's why I, Dr. Mouse says, I cannot be a universalist because God is going to deal with evil acts and horrendous rebellious sin at the end when his son comes back. It's what in Revelation 20 is called the great white throne judgment. People are going to have to give an account. We who put our faith in Christ, Jesus has taken the judgment for us. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus from day one. But those who have rejected God's grace will answer to him. I find comfort in that. And I agree with Dr. Mel. That's why I can't be a universal God does not send people to hell. They chose that. And he is simply as C.S. Lewis says in The Great Divorce, God looks him in the eyes and says, Thy will be done. This is what you have chosen. Eternity is the trajectory of choices we make in life. That's what Solomon is saying. Got it?
Right now, for my wife's, well, I told you, my wife's, or excuse me, my son's wife, my daughter in law's father, who uh, has had a series of strokes. He's had a hard heart all his life. He's a philosopher. I've had many, many, many discussions with him. And I've been praying the last all four or five weeks Lord, I do not want Pete to go into eternity without Christ. Can you envision an eternity without Christ? That's what Solomon is. You can use it in New Testament words. That's what Solomon's saying. And in eternity without Christ, the wicked will not, it will not be well. Can I do one more thing before we get it's it's just the last the last uh, the last two verses of, of chapter eight. There's a vanity that takes place in the earth. This is I still can't understand this, but he's saying that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. That's that 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 same. This doesn't way I'm looking at things doesn't make sense. I said this is also vanity, and he goes on. I commend joy for man has no good under the sun, but to eat, drink, and be joyful, for this will go for this will go with him in his toil through the days of life that God has given him under the sun. He's saying two things, and we've seen this theme before. I cannot understand the ways of God. Because again, the righteous people, it happens to them according to the deeds of the wicked. And the wicked people, it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. It seems like it's slipping. Why are the wicked people prospering and the righteous people not? I understand that. I can't figure it out. God's providence is mysterious, but God's still in control. So what's my response? My default response to everything is enjoy the life that God has given me. That's what he says. And he will say this over, you're going to see it more and more in these last, we're almost near the end of the book, these last couple of chapters of the book, he's bringing this up. Don't try to figure out everything that God is doing, but enjoy the life that he's given you. And he will say this, I think, three times. Joy is a gift God gives you. The capacity and ability to enjoy life is a gift from God. Don't try to figure everything out because you are not eternal, you're not infinite, you're not sovereign. God is but enjoy what he has given you, the joy of life. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul said. So I close with that. And it's important. I, I have to go back to that over and over again. Lord, I cannot figure out what you're doing here. This doesn't make sense to me, Lord. Did you ever say that to God? But you, their default then is, okay. But I have to trust you, and that doesn't mean I do not have the fruit of the Spirit called joy in my life. A wise person, let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 8. A wise person, you see it, you follow a person around that's wise. You will see the manifestation of God's joy in their life. If you were to follow my mother's with the Lord, she's been with the Lord for a number of years now, but if you were to follow my mother around, that's what you would have seen. A woman who manifests the joy of the Lord. It's a gift from God. Because human, human people, on, on their own strength, do not manifest joy. They're griping, complaining, miserable people that are not nice to be around. That's not supposed to be a Christian. Okay, now I am done. Next week, we're going to start chapter 9.
Now, if you're if you're keeping count, we only have a few more chapters, and it's not going to take us long to see. This is what I'm thinking about doing for our next study. I would like to do a study of Galatians and James and compare the two. Would that be all right? Yes. Because wonderful. Absolutely. In Galatians, in Galatians we learn you are justified by faith. In James, we learn you're justified by works. Works. How do we reconcile this? Or show me the works. And your thought paper will be to reconcile those two in a 1,500-word paper. (laughs) Perfect. Now you're going to say, no, I don't want to study it. We're just kidding. You don't have to do that. All right. I would appreciate prayer from my grandson, Luca, my my daughter, Andrew, and, and Joanna's little boy. He's nine months old. Eat Down syndrome, he cannot hear. And on April the 24th, he's having cochlear implant surgery out at Bushtown National Research Clinic. So we're excited about that, but uh, his condition is very rare, even for Down syndrome, maybe. They cannot even find the nerves in the back of his head that relate to hearing. So apparently, he doesn't have those nerves. So they're going to do, you know, Bushtown is just fantastic. I don't know how much you know about it. They're fantastic people. There's a whole team of people working with Luca, um, or, well, with Joanna, but working with Luca. And they've, they've reached some conclusions. They're very optimistic about what they think they can do. So our prayer is that we'll be able to hear. But already they're saying he's probably going to, he's probably going to still, so Peggy, my wife, and Joanna and Andrew are learning sign through ALS. Uh, you can do it online. Oklahoma State University has a free course on that. I've not yet. All I know is more and thank you and things like that. But so it's it's kind of it's kind of been, we're on a journey. But it's done. And that, the thing that's so neat about my kids is they say of Luca, he is God's gift to us. Amen. And he is of value and worth. God. And they just like he is the neatest little boy, even with his uh, down. So anyway, I appreciate you. <laughs> Father, we thanks again for your providence and. We know that you have a plan for Luca. And we know that he's in very good medical hands. We pray for the the best outcome for Luca and for your uh, for your uh, plan for us. It is in your providence. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you very very much. All right, man. We'll see you next week.